Hey, this is Helen Dawson, and you're listening to the Innovation Crowd podcast. Businesses are looking to reinvent themselves, be more digital, more sustainable, and thrive in a volatile world. Yet most corporate innovation programs don't deliver. In fact, many don't even survive after their second birthday. On this show, I sit down with the experts to discuss the strategies that work, so you don't have to learn the hard way. So come and join me in the innovation crowd. Hello and welcome back to our innovation discussions. So today I'm delighted to have Jeff Roberts joining me and we're going to have a conversation all about innovation and futures and how companies should or should not be talking about the future. So Jeff, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, Thanks, Helen. Absolutely delighted to be here. Um, As you know, I'm Jeff Roberts. Um, I am part of a company called Jump Innovation. I'm setting up our new futures and foresights practice, uh, which is called Dive Without Fear. Um, We should go live, hopefully, within the next week. I say this. I'm committing myself to a deadline now. Um, But we should formally soft launch uh, next week with a a formal launch in the new year. So, Brilliant. So what do you think companies get wrong when they think about the future? I mean, it's a great question. I think, I mean, there's a whole host of things, but I would probably boil it down to two big ones. So I think one side, it tends to be either just wild extrapolation. So there tends to be a lot of backward looking and taking a particular set of data points and then extrapolating for those data points and assuming that the world will look like that at some future date. And I think that's uh, quite tightly entangled with another problem that I think we repeatedly see, uh, which tends to be just falling for hype cycles. So that is just hoping against hope that something will happen. So either throwing enough money behind something in the hopes that it'll make it real or just a, a belief that some sort of flesh in the pan trend or speculation is going to is going to manifest into some sort of defined future. So I think, as, as you probably know just as well as I do, the, the reality of the matter is a little bit more complicated than that. But I think tends to be what happens is that obviously most organizations are involved because you have to be in the process of simplifying things. And through that process of simplification to make sense of something, to try to get your arms around it, um, it tends to boil down into relying on on false hope across those two dimensions, I think. So how would you suggest that companies kind of look at it instead? I mean, obviously, as somebody whose job this is, I have have something to peddle. (laughs) Nice. Peddle away. But I think, you know, for for us, it's really a case of, and I think this is common enough um, for anybody. So I think, you know, we we have some particular approaches that we take to doing these things. But I think the general model is more or less wide aperture at the beginning. So I think the whole idea is really do some proper horizon scanning, understand what's going on in the world. But then you need to define some sort of mechanism that you think will entangle these various forces or, or, or lines of activity or things that we're saying together into creating something new. So I, I think, like I mentioned earlier, one of the biggest problems tends to be linearity. So this assumption that we can kind of look at a trend chart and we can say, right, okay, well, we did X at the same point last year, so we can expect it to look like Y next year within some broad sensitivities, right? So we can set those around, whatever they might be. When the reality of the matter is, is that Really what happens is, is that you have a whole bunch of activity happening and then there is sort of how that gets interwe- interwoven or how it frays, I think is the really simple way of thinking about it. 
So is to come in and say, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening, right? So I'm involved in all kinds of relationships simultaneously as a company where I might be selling stuff to consumers. I'm getting stuff from suppliers. I'm subject to some sort of regulatory regime. I'm trying to build a partnership with somebody. I'm trying to do a JV somewhere. I'm trying to open a new market, whatever those things might be. And while you're doing all those things simultaneously, they often operate according to wildly different logics or rules of the game. And then that pulls you in all kinds of different directions as a business. And so I think this is where we tend to fall back on the simplification argument, which is, right, we just narrow in onto one element of those without realizing that actually what can happen is that they overlap, they intertwine, they can rebound and cascade into each other in the ways that we don't necessarily, um, aren't obvious at the outset. So I think that's probably a rather long example or illustration of what I'm trying to make the point, which is that really what you want to get into is an understanding of sort of what's happening in the outside world. How might those things get enchained? How might they link up into something? What are all the things that we're involved in? What are things that peer groups might be involved in? Groups that we're not even thinking about might be involved in? And how might they cascade into my world? So you need some sort of explanation of generation. What's the thing that might create this new alternative? And then from that, it's a case of just defining how are you going to explore that? So we, you know, most futures, foresights, people start with a set of scenarios. We do as well. They're great ways. Short stories about the future. Gives you an understanding of sort of what this world might look like. And then you decompose that world into sort of what shows up there. Right? What kind of consumers show up there? What kind of needs do they have? Who are the competitors that are there to meet those needs, etc.? And then from that decomposition, I think, that's where you can go all kinds of different paths. I mean, my team and I are quite keen on formalism. So we create a whole set of computational simulations to basically just run hundreds of thousands of builds of this tape. So how might these things play out? What might they look like? What kind of patterns do we see emerging in the future? And then we translate those on our side into immersive experiences. So it's about taking the things that look like they're quite interesting that might be happening in a, in a simulation environment because, quite frankly, despite the fact that nobody ever really wants to properly understand it, everybody loves science, so we sort of throw some science at it. But then what really people grasp onto, what our clients grasp onto, is the experience, the, the immersive event of it. So how do you show up in this world? What are, what are the indicators of how this thing might look like? What's this new thing that's been created either in the simulation or through some sort of scenario decomposition or whatever the case may be. And then how do you show up there? What does that look like? And so, you know, we do that through a whole bunch of different ways via immersive experiences using, say, 3D modeling, video game engines, actual events with theater troops, all kinds of things, short little snippets, prototyping, you know, artifacts from the future, things like that that might show up. But to my mind, I think if we boil it down, which is what I should have done at the start, so forgive me, but if I were to boil it down into a really simple argument, is that you want to start by taking a wide understanding of what's going on. You need to identify some sort of mechanism that might connect all those things that are going on into something new. So they're probably, in the very near term, is going to look like yesterday, but a little bit further out has a higher likelihood of being different. And so how, does, how do you decode how you bring those things together? And then there needs to be some sort of mechanism of figuring out how they might turn into alternative things. And then what are you going to do against those alternative things? So rather than just hoping against hope, which is what I think we see a lot of things do, or wild speculation of it looked like this yesterday or this time last year, it'll probably look like that time next time, next year. It's about accepting a, a different model of generation, I think, of how the future comes about. And I often find when I talk to organizations that that bit of sort of strategy, because it is strategy, is missing but it's replaced with something kind of high level like, oh, we should do services <laughs> or, oh, we should do subscription. That's my favorite. Everyone, everyone loves subscription except Look consumers. at the multiples. Everybody loves a subscription. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think it's sort of interesting to say, well, 
it's not just that there's something missing, it's that there's something much more tangible with a bit of science that can go into closing that gap. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the easiest course available to most organizations is blind mimicry, right? You, you look around, you see what other people are doing. And you think, well, that kind of works well for them. Maybe we should give that a shot. Or that seems to be getting rewarded financially in status terms, in, in ink write-ups, whatever, that, that we should follow that path. But the reality is, is more of a case of trying to discern what possible options may emerge at some future date. And then how are you going to show up there? And what can you do to try to bring that thing into into existence. And how do you feel about kind of organizations going on their own versus ones that kind of create some sort of ecosystem around themselves? I mean, it's a great question. I think it's horses for courses from my perspective. You know, I think that the key thing is, is nothing, nothing is born in and of itself, right? So Athena didn't spring forth fully formed from Zeus's head. It, you know, it, it doesn't, that sort of basic argument that things don't come into creation by their own. You know, the idea of the lone, the lone genius who created some wild innovation that subsequently just took hold on its own. So I think the reality of the matter is, is that yes, organizations need to understand that these things require collaboration, but that can be within the bounds of your existing organization, or it can certainly be outside. I mean, the, the beauty of, and it depends on what you're trying to do, I think. You know, um, that's a very consultant answer, right? Is that, but there, there's no singular approach to doing this, is that it really depends on what kind of problem you're trying to solve. And some problems for, say, ones that you don't have a capability inside of the organization, or it's something that you're not necessarily familiar with or that you've done in the past or that you've done with a great deal of success, looking for external collaboration and structuring that relationship in the right way could be hugely helpful. You know, it can be really useful to do that. But I think particularly for large organizations, you know, sort of once you break 100 people, you reach a level of complexity that, you know, can't be distilled by a single person. You know, it's hard for a single person to keep track of that. So you can only imagine that when you break 5,000, 10,000, 50,000 people, you've got so much available complexity within the business, so much available variation and variety within there, that there's oftentimes a lot of opportunity to look across the field internally and say, how do we coordinate this? What do we pull together? What might what might um, emerge from from that recombination? Yeah, and I think you know lots of organisations think they know how the organisation works, but <laughs> perhaps they don't. <laughs> My favourite one being, how do you pay people? Yeah. <laughs> you get to an organisation that's a certain size and nobody knows anymore. Well, I mean that's the thing, right? I mean I think most of the places I'm much earlier in my career being surprised, although I really shouldn't have been, but being surprised that nobody knew how many people they employed <laughs> and nobody knew how how to actually identify how many people you employed and or what they do. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where they do it, on what time frame, yeah, all those things. Yeah. But I guess I mean that's that's kind of the challenge, isn't it, for big organizations is that they have a big business that takes a lot of people to keep the wheels on generating the cash now and that looking to the future is something that they can keep you know kicking into the kicking into the grass long grass for someone else to do no i think that that's exactly right is that you know particularly when you're making money it's oftentimes really difficult to take a step back and say right what might happen that might disrupt you know this, this cash machine that's running in the basement present right so i think of I mean, there's always, there's a million examples and they sort of shift every five years. But I mean, the one that always comes to mind for me is thinking about BlackBerry, you know, RIM, um, Nokia. I mean, I, I don't know why I'm coming to phones today, but the, but the whole idea is I'm just thinking about, you know, you had these businesses that created and absolutely dominated a market segment only to be supplanted. Yeah. And I think BlackBerry in particular, 
was supplanted by end users, not companies, yeah. right? The demand, it was probably the first product-led growth thing out there was executives were like, quite like my iPhone, thanks. <laughs> Make it work. Make it work for the corporate world, thanks. Exactly, exactly, right? Because, I mean, they, they had locked in early on into a... Um, what turned out to be just a bad choice, right? It made a lot of sense at the time. And this is the whole thing, right? Around, They'd locked into an enterprise model, which made a whole lot of sense because it allowed them to sell a lot of units. And then you get the resultant um, scale behind that. Production costs go down. You've got more steady revenue because we know com um, companies in particular have very standardized, almost rhythmic buying cycles. So it's easy to get into that. So, you know, your balance sheet looks healthy. Everything looks good when you set like that. But the reality is, is you're exactly right, is that... You can you can quickly get undermined by a, a different product coming in that that again plays to a different need set that say BlackBerry was functionally very good, but it didn't play to the status thing that the iPhone did right. So it allowed it to undermine it by coming at it from a completely different angle. So I guess where what trends do you think people should be looking at? Today. I mean, I should say this from the outset, like we're hugely anti-trend in our business, mainly because we just think it's because for those reasons I talked about, it, there's an assumption of linearity and it generally tends to elide any sort of generative mechanism. Like, where does it come from? And so and, and then obviously when people say, well, it comes from X or Y or Z or whatever the case is, you tend to end up in this sort of onion peeling where there's no actual center to it. So it tends to come up. So I think, you know, for us, we, we, we look at big things that might be happening and then try to figure out what kind of how they might disrupt so for us think of about of a bunch of discon a bunch of more or less overlapping interconnected networks that are just sort of feeding back on themselves etc and then for us it's about figuring out how might those get disrupted what might things that might just change the dynamic of how it flows and this happens constantly and most of these disruptions don't really matter because there's so much redundancy across things that they, it can survive and reconfigure the big ones that we've been playing around with most recently um is this concept that we've shamelessly stolen from an academic in America, uh, this guy called Henry Farrell, who teaches at George Washington um, in DC. So he, uh, he came up, he wrote an article, um, his co-author's name escapes me, so apologies to her, um, but, uh, but they wrote this piece called Weaponized Integration. And so one of the big things, and this is one of the big things that we've been looking at, is really around this concept of sort of, the last 40 years of, of globalization were, were broadly driven under the assumption that more integration of trade would lead to greater greater equality rather across trading partners. The reality of the matter is, is that it's just created a whole new set of choke points. Is that we can see, like particularly in the pandemic, um, is that you know you saw factories in China start to shut down, and then that leads to huge cascades, end up with a bullwhip effect where you can't get X in Missouri, whatever it is. So you know where all these things would go out of stock. So what we're saying is that increasingly those are becoming these choke points are becoming weaponized and and war by different means. So uh, big ones, other ones you'd point to is obviously a lot of offshore manufacturing in Asia, but you know the fact that the dollar is the dominant currency in which most things are denominated in, the US Treasury, particularly under the Biden administration, has gotten really aggressive around enforcement actions. So the Treasury said about 15 years ago, if it's done in dollars, we're going to claim jurisdiction over it. So it didn't matter what it was, you know, oil purchasing, um, uh, sort of futures trading um, or, you know, weapon sales, whatever. If it happened and they could identify a U.S. dollar base in it, it, the U.S. used this as an excuse to intervene in the transaction. And so it justified all kinds of things and continues to justify all kinds of things. But what we're saying is that as a result of that, you know, you, you, you're seeing a great deal of a pull away from a, um, a globalization model that basically said, oh, yeah, you know, the flows will be there. We have these now 
very finely tuned supply chains that move things complicated uh, ways across the world. And now those are being disrupted on a more regular basis. And so, you know, most recent example I can think of is, say, chip manufacturing. The U.S. getting really aggressive, you know, using it as a bulwark against um, Chinese aggression in Taiwan. You know, there's a whole host of things, efforts to bring sort of nearshoring or friendshoring, things along those lines. So this idea that basically we live in a world where everything that we can think about how it works, like the goods we see on the shelf, the, 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 the ready availability of all kinds of items that we experience, all the things around us, um, are, are increasingly a result of systems that are under increasing amount of strain because it's become weaponized effectively. So that's one of the big ones we've been looking at, is, is sort of what does that play out? What does that mean as a result of it? And I remember, oh, I'm going to say like six, six or seven years ago, running some workshops that were based on some scenarios that were done around financial services. And, and obviously they had the breakdown of globalization and the North America team were like, come on, we can make this work. And the European team got very depressed <laughs> and went, oh my God, the world's about to end. Well, I mean, I, think I don't like this future. I'm going to go back to my cave. <laughs> sorry, 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 help. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we've been playing with is that, you know, obviously we, we, we probably see something, it won't be as extreme, but like one of the scenarios we've been playing around because we've got a big project that we're running, which we'll go live with in the new year, sort of looking at how these things might play out. But one of the things we've been playing out is a, a return of multipolarity, right? So the idea is that you start to see so not necessarily sort of pre-World War One levels multipolarity, but, but the idea is that you start to see more of the, you know, Europe trying to assert itself. Um, China starting to assert itself, particularly financial services models, you know, trying to get currencies backed up as reserve currencies. The U.S. obviously pushing against that quite hard. What does that mean in terms of the disruption that can cascade out from that? Because, like I said, a lot of everything around us is currently, I mean, the last 40 years, because it's sort of hard, because I was but a wee mite uh, at the beginning of this period. But the, the idea of thinking about a lot of us can't really remember what life was like before everything was really easy and comparatively cheap. And so I think what we could potentially see is quite a disruption to that. And then obviously that cascades into all kinds of other things. Yeah, and I think this sort of view of wealth and disposable income is quite definitely a question mark over it now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, um, I mean, well, I'll do a plug for it. We were, we're, the piece we're working on is called Life After Cheap Money. So effectively, you know, you've had a, you've had a decade of uh, ultra low interest rates, a lot of quantitative easing, etc., but that was coupled with growing inequality, particularly in the developed world, just bonfires of private cash getting burned for no real benefit via uh, private equity, in particular venture capital funds. You know, we didn't really see any massive uh, uh, development on most fronts, but, you know, we got Deliveroo. So it's it's sort of what, what do we get in, in terms of that front? And so sort of what comes out after this? You know, what, what what's the world start to look like after this? Because so much of that was predicated on, you know, general calm, a lack of war. Freely available energy, um, you know, ease of movement, particularly from a sort of goods perspective, and all of that sort of being increasingly called into question. And so what this solidifies into, however briefly, you know, what this sort of settle, whatever new pattern this settles into, is likely to look very different than what we've experienced, particularly for the last decade, but certainly for the previous 40 years. The age of convenience is over. I fear it might very well be. I mean, I think a lot of it was, you know, convenience for convenience sake, you know, I think is, is probably going to end. But I think, you know, if if I were a betting person, and, and I'm most certainly not, but if I, if I were a betting person, you know, the big things that I would be worried about are 
broadly disruptions happening more regularly, whether they're climate-driven or whether they're choke-point-driven. So, you know, the Suez crisis with the Evergreen is a... Is a per, or Evergard rather is a is a perfect example of how very small um, inconveniences can have massive knock-on effects, because we've created a, like I said this beautiful I mean it's an actual thing of beauty but uh, this beautiful system that is is very finely tuned and very subject to um, minor disruption, so I think that's going to be a big one to watch to play out. And certainly on a supply chain side, that was the big kind of aha of the pandemic was okay these supply chains are more complex than we thought and hey we don't have enough inventory right (laughs) which is a very unpopular thing to say to cfos we don't have enough inventory um and that whole kind of just assuming supplies continuous uninterrupted just gone well i mean that's it i mean i would really but organizations aren't adapting in the way you think they might well i, I think you're exactly right i mean i think there's and it, a lot of it is because a lot of these things are moving so we talked talked earlier about a bunch of different forces and yeah, i like to think of them like, like my own personal simplification is to almost like shingles on a roof right they overlap they reinforce but there's a little bit of new with each piece and we can see that they're moving in wildly different time frames so obviously businesses uh, responded to a set of uh, political inducements that, you know, free trade agreements or, or um, you know, the idea of, of liberalization in China or things like NAFTA, North America, or obviously the EU created these gigantic markets that made it easy to move things across pieces, which then allowed us to, which then itself coincided with um, a, a changing set of business logics, which were really around, right, you focus on singular things that you're good at, you know, stop having multiple business units, stop doing other things, you want to be focused, focused, focused. So, you know, our current leader, our, our current um, cohort, there's a big demographic play here, the current cohort of people in charge of large companies, went through business school at a point where it was all about core competence. And it was all about just running lean, although the reality is it's not really running that lean. But, you know, the idea of running, you know, with, with limited inventory focused on a very full, a very few um, number of things that you want to deal with. And these things all have sort of coalesced into an environment that means that um, we operate in a way that, when the environment itself is starting to change, which it is, we're going to see cascades. Let's say China, for instance, the, the the chilling Cold War between the West and China. As we can start to see, you know, these cascades are going to play out in ways that we're not really equipped to. And then we've got a we've got a cohort of people who are in charge of things who have never experienced anything different. And that's, to my mind, I mean, there's part of me, the former academic in me, is like, well, that'd be really interesting to study. The person who has to actually deal with it from a sort of helping clients through these things goes, my God, that's really complicated. And I think this is what we can see is that there's a whole bunch of things moving in slightly different timelines. So we're saying political change occur. You know, I think this is one of the big ones that's a huge challenge. But then obviously the business logics themselves that undergird a lot of how things are presently organized are starting to change. you got to carry inventory. Maybe it's not so good to just to go to lowest cost. Um, you know, it's a lot more bet hedging, I think, than, than, than previously had been in place. And I think there's some interesting stuff in there about risk. And about leaders taking risk or viewing personal risk about these decisions differently. Um, you know, that kind of, oh, well, if I make these sets of efficiency decisions and no one I'm kind of on safe ground, they're probably the least safe ground listening to you. But they are still the trend of play it safe, mm. perhaps. It's what gets rewarded, right? I mean, that's what I was saying. If we think about the changing business logic, so coinciding with this mass era of, of far-flung globalization, 
there was a real shift around 79, 80. There was a real shift in the developed world um, to move from, you know, quite, um, quite tight parity on all kinds of things, of carrying lots of redundancy in the organization to things, again, it was the whole idea of a push towards if we do a smaller number of things, we focus on them. And then an increasing uh, being rewarded by, by public markets. So, so for previously... Previously, listing on a share exchange was, was just to raise money when you needed it. And then it became the reason for existing, particularly in a sort of a post-1980 world. And so as a result of that, companies, particularly senior executives, get rewarded for doing things that might not necessarily be in the best interest of the organization. And that's been the case for the last 40 years. There's nothing new there. And we, you know we've seen all kinds of spectacular meltdowns as a result of that. But I think increasingly what we're going to see in the new environment that we're moving into is that those kind of incentives that push behavior like that are increasingly going to undermine businesses that respond to those incentives. I think there's going to be a real, to my mind, a really interesting pull apart with the idea from the financialization that has driven a lot of corporate behavior, particularly for the last 40 years, so a focus on share valuation and on, on quarterly returns, that you would do stuff that you could always kind of recover because things were more or less stable. So even if you cut the wrong 5,000 people, you would generally sort of bounce back eventually. And I don't think we're going to see as a forgiving an environment as what we've seen, particularly for the last decade. So money's not as cheap. The levels of integration in international trade are starting to fray. And so I think as a result of that, things that get rewarded from a financial perspective are increasingly going to bounce back and reverberate into all kinds of things that might not necessarily be good for the long-term health of the company. So you think chasing shareholder value is dead? I don't think it's dead. I think it very much exists. You know, I always reminded of the business roundtable. You know, so America's like premier, you know, large company um, um, uh, lobbying organization. You know, they all signed up to uh, shareholder values dead. I think it was in 2015, 2017. They all said it's over. And every single one of them still chases shareholder returns. I don't think it's dead. I think following behaviors, I think behaviors that, that are, are driving that sort of, um, uh, or sorry, I'll try that again. I think the kind of things that are chasing shareholder value are ultimately going to undermine the health of the business. I think it's just because, I don't think it's dead necessarily. I think that continuing to follow those lines of activity, which companies will continue to do because, I mean, who am I? They're going to continue doing it. But the reality is, is that that kind of behavior, I think we're going to move into a much more unforgiving environment over the next five, I'd say even more sooner than that, probably next three to five years, where doing things that would get you rewarded, slicing out parts of the business, sacking a lot of people, making acquisitions, whatever the case, moving moving into new markets, etc., are going to carry higher risk and unintended consequences than they previously did. Who would want to be a CEO right now? <laughs> Someone with a massive risk appetite. You have to be. <laughs> yeah, which is great because actually no longer a safe pair of hands. It's a really interesting dilemma. I, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't think we're going to move. You know, I want to be really clear. I don't think we're moving into some world of like unprecedented volatility. I don't think that at all, right? I, I just think that what we've had is an extended period of calm. And I think the kind of yeah. behaviors that an extended period of calm rewards won't necessarily work when things start to get a little tricky and also we just have never seen any dis we haven't so it took it took 40 years to build the system that we're living in now and as it starts to fray i'll say when as it starts to fray or come into increasing stress we really don't know how to respond because historically we've never lived in a in a global system like the one we live in 
And so we don't really have an earlier period that we can look back on. So we've seen collapse on, say, smaller regional models. We know what that looks like. I'm not expecting collapse, but what I'm saying is, is probably a lot of pain and unintended pain and things that, things that were set up and ran beautifully for decades because the system, the, 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 the moorings that they're on, the underpinnings that, they're, that, that, that support them are being eroded away. And where does kind of corporate innovation fit into that? No, I think it's it's funny because it's one of these things I've been looking at a lot recently. Obviously, is um, you know I think it's it's one of the huge ones. We we have really experienced the level of of unprecedented stagnation the past ten years. The interesting thing about the last decade is that you had all this money sloshing around. Historically, when you had all this money sloshing around, governments and companies built stuff. They invested in physical infrastructure. They invested in in, in improving things, and we really haven't seen that. You know, you certainly haven't seen it in the developed world. You know, you, you've seen bits and pieces of things get done, but most of it has just been channeled into, as you said earlier, more rapid convenience. You know, who really needs 15-minute groceries? You know, it's that sort of thing. Is It just seemed to be opportunity. So I think that the implications to my mind for corporate innovation are broadly around this. It, it's not that there are fewer ideas. It's just that they're harder to execute. They're more expensive to execute because the, the underlying organizational and, and scientific requirements to bring them to life have simply gotten more complex. And so to my mind is that there's an opportunity as painful as it's going to be and is how it will not be rewarded by public markets. There needs to be, it's not just throwing cash at it, it's building the organizational infrastructure to actually funnel and do something with that cash. There's a great piece I was just reading, it was published about three months ago in Nature um, uh, on a review of Bell Labs. The Ideas Factory is one of my favorite books about Bell Labs, so AT&T's R&D group. Um, Really interesting. I'd forgotten. You know, they, they were responsible for nine Nobel Prizes, um, I think four Turing Prizes. And this was just a private research group. You know, they did all kinds of amazing stuff. But one of their big things was not only did they have unbelievable amounts of cash, but that was supported by an organizational environment that probably isn't likely to reproduce itself, right? The American government said, AT&T, you can just be a monopoly. You don't have to worry about competition, but you have to make anything you create openly available. So it ultimately ended up undermining them because companies did stuff with their research that undermined AT&T. But I think the big implication is that they, they were organized beautifully and they were able to do stuff in ways that we don't allow organizations to do stuff, right? There were no progress reports. There were no checking in. There was no, or as I like to think about it, you know, that we're going to start an innovation lab and then the executive team walks in and it's like planting a seed and then digging it up every two days to see if it's, if it's sprouted roots, right? How are you doing in there? They were just allowed to pursue a mixture of basic and applied science, which again, prevailing business logic doesn't really allow us to do. If you want to do R&D, it needs to be focused toward doing something. It has to be productized. It has to be come out. And the really cool thing about Bell Labs is that some of it was productized. A lot of it was just generic science that supported a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I think, to my mind, what is required for corporate innovation is really a, a, a different approach than, again, I would point to the demographics of it, than most people who are working in large organizations today will have either directly experienced or have been told it is okay to do. I think it's, it, it requires a lot of flexibility. It requires a good deal of mix of basic and applied. It requires a lot of freedom. And it requires an understanding that it won't necessarily produce something for next quarter, which, again, is a hard one to say because we're not rewarded for that. <laughs> yeah, and not even next year. Exactly. Or the year after that. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's probably the biggest misunderstanding 
even of people that work in innovation is they think one to three years is the time frame that they're going to make some meaningful revenue and even if they're doing everything right probably going to fail probably but even then (laughs) if it works still five to seven years of seven plus years who's got that patience yeah, I mean, what again? You look at executive tenure; it's it's not even that long, right? So you need something that yeah. rewards you on your watch because you want your LTIPS to cash out. I mean, there's a whole like I said, we live in a complicated world where all kinds of different forces, these, these entwinements in which um, organizations and their leaders find themselves in, are pulling them in directions that are oftentimes antithetical to doing the things they proclaim they want to do, and and that's the real challenge. And I think that's the so, and I think the response to that is, you know, there are really good things that we can see, right? Look at mRNA vaccines. Amazing. Yep. And and that came out of a, a beautiful mix of basic science, largely government funded. And then, you know, that was rapidly, um, rapidly monetized uh, big, through a set of private enterprises. And I think rethinking the interface between, say, government funding and industry is a big one. Thinking about university collaborations. You know, again, it's one of those things everybody likes to talk about, but, you know, universities, and I say this as an ex-academic who used to work vaguely in this space before I finally jumped ship, was um, the, the, the funniest thing is, is it's like the old Richard Feynman story of, um, of uh, it's the last chapter, it's the coda in, in his book, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, where he talks about cargo cult science. And university incubators have a lot of the cargo cult science. They have all the trappings of what a innovation unit would look like. So, you know, like the cargo cults, they set out, um, you know, coconut shells like their landing lights, and then they wave palm fronds to bring cargo planes back, but they don't actually have the real organizational infrastructure to do it. And so I think it's sort of a similar idea. It's, it's moving beyond the assumption that it immediately turns into something and more of an understanding that a lot of it is just basic infrastructure. A lot of it's just basic science. And I think it's about reframing it from what, how do we get a win into something that says we've created this basic thing and maybe we look through, I think P&G are great at this. They're probably somebody I would flag is really good at this. And saying, we've created something that's really cool. Maybe it's not in our wheelhouse. How do we spin it into a JV where we actually make money on it? And I think sort of just reconceptualizing things from a, again, the very classic, we have to be focused on a very small number of things. They have to pay back quickly. They have to do these things. And say, we're going to invest in basic stuff that is broadly related to where we play and you know what? Some of it might work out from us. Some of it might not work out for us. We'll find a different way of monetizing it, and that's might what it might be. I think it would be super helpful. It is to dream, you know. I don't, I, you know, that that's, that's all <laughs> I can do. Amazing. So one final question um, that maybe will help our listeners. So what's one thing you learned the hard way that you wish someone had told you? <laughs> I, I think people told me this. I just don't think I listened. Um, is uh, <laughs> probably the biggest one is is uh, simple simple stories. Um, I think that's the big one, and it's funny. It's ironic I say that after just telling a whole set of really complicated stories. Um, the simple stories and with visuals. I think that's the biggest thing that I've probably learned more of all, most of all, is that just like the organizations that we've talked about that are tied up in all kinds of different cross-cutting pressures, you know, anybody you're presenting to in an organization is focused on a whole bunch of things simultaneously. And the cleaner and the simpler, and particularly the more visual story you can tell about whatever it is the thing that you're doing, the greater the likelihood of somebody going, okay, at least I remember enough about that to do something with it. It kind of doesn't matter if it's a good idea or not. Making it clear enough to be repeatable and understood will take you further than having a good idea, I think. 
yeah, I think that's so true. I actually, my last team at Shell, we had uh, storytelling training. It's amazing. I think it's super valuable. I, I think it's super, super valuable. It was great. And they thought, what are we doing? And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I see. <laughs> Someone remembers what I've said. Oh, that's useful. But yeah, makes all the difference. It really does. And I fought it. I'll admit, I still fight it to this day. I require re a regular reminding that that's the way of doing it because I personally have a more analytic bend. I want to believe that the better idea should win. But the reality of it is, is that if you can create the earworm, it's more likely for going forward, you know, if it's simple and clean, easy to understand. But of course, the myth is that it's easy to create the straightforward Oh dear story. God, yeah. It's I mean, if, if it were, I would have done it by now. You know, the reality is, is that yeah, it's yeah. super, super, super hard. But I guess that's, again, it's another reason to, to talk about the necessity of the right capability there. And again, it's why I'm all about lots of variety. Instead of being focused on a singular thing, you know, you don't necessarily know what that redundancy is used for now, and you don't necessarily know what it might be used for in the future. So sometimes it's good to keep a bit of it around. <laughs> so I think, you know. Yeah, so true. Thank you so much, Jeff. I've loved our chats. Thank you, Helen. It's been a pleasure. And, uh, it's been great fun. Maybe you can come back later and give us another view in the new year. I'd love that. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Innovation Crowd. Subscribe on your favourite podcasting service so you don't miss a thing. And I'll see you next time.